Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Love the British monarchy. You've come to the right place. Welcome to the To Die For Daily podcast with Kinsey Schofield. Take it away, Kinsey. Kinsey here with todiefordaily.com, and thank you so much for checking out the To Die For Daily podcast. Here's author Stuart Pierce. Stuart Pierce, thank you so much for talking to todiefordaily.com. We are huge fans. And what's so interesting to me is that I found you through Princess Diana, but Princess Diana is not your first, you know, foray into the royal family. You grew up around the queen. And she was stunning, wasn't she? Absolutely stunning. And sadly, we're getting to her latter years. And she's still extraordinary, indefatigable. And we, all we receive is grace, grace, grace. Mm-hmm. So that's a long time ago. Yes, my dad, my dad worked for the royal family. That what that means is that he was an aide to Prince Philip. And they met during the war. They were both sailors. And uh and they met, and there, there was, you know, there, there was a whole story which would take a long time to tell, to do with war, to do with hero, heroism, and so forth. And so my father became observable, and Philip and he connected. They were the same age. They were born two weeks apart, wow. so they became like brothers. I mean, Dad was a servant; he wasn't a member of the family, but they became very close. Very, my dad was a confidant for 33 years before his very early death. In fact, dad died shooting in Scotland with Prince Philip shooting birds out of the air in grouse season. And he had a huge heart attack and Philip looked after him. So it was quite dramatic. I mean, he was 50, they were both 50, 55, I think when it took place. Wow. And and is that relationship with your father and Prince Philip why you are so you know brilliant when it comes to the royals i've watched interviews with you where you can spit out dates you can spit out instances you're almost also a historian is that relationship with your father did that have anything to do with that passion you have in the royal family or or is that diana I, I guess it's to do with my love of history, my love of tradition, my love of heritage, although actually I'm a Renaissance man, so I'm really a Republican, you know? <laughs> um, but I have, uh, uh, I have uh, uh, in, in many ways an affiance for, you know, for culture and for heritage and the beauty of the wonder and the awe and the majesty of the magic of presence and particularly presence of the order that we're describing. But if you met my brother, who's a year older than I, I mean, he's completely different. He's not at all interested. Ended up being a CEO, et cetera. You know, he's retired into the countryside now because we're both of a certain age. He's mm-hmm. retired. I've only just started. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he he's very, very different, but it's, it's an absolute love. And I suppose the calling, a vocation to help those that are great and good, and if they're not so great and not so good, I try and remind them as best as I can through grace. Uh, 
Right. Um, and, and so it's very extraordinary the way that my destiny has been interwoven around mighty people starting really with the social milieu that you've just described, but also in 1980, being called to work with Margaret Thatcher. That was my first big client. You know, I'd given up 10 years of acting um, because of a, a whole situation that took place personally in the sense of there I was working in New York City where I'd ended up and, you know, was working as an actor for two years and I got a big movie contract. I was moving to your home city, Los Angeles, to make this movie. And as I was packing up the apartment in New York City, the telephone rang and it was my brother saying, what are you doing? And I said, well, you know what I'm doing. And he said, are you sitting down? And of course I knew in a flash what he was gonna say. Yeah. And he said, you know, you, you need to know mom's got terminal cancer. She's oh. got three months to live. What are you gonna do about it? So I, I let the movie go, you see, in breach of contract. Uh, came back to the United Kingdom where I am now, nursed my mother for a year. She went, but of course I lost my agent, I lost my manager, 20th Century Fox were never going to employ me again because of it being in breach of contract. And it was a question of redirection, you know, it's like the universe was saying, okay, wheel of destiny, turn. And I was called by the voice director of the Royal Shakespeare Company, with whom I'd worked earlier as an actress. And she was just simply saying, darling, where are you? And I said, well, I'm here. And she said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm not doing anything. I'm just being this. And I told her my story. And she said, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. And she said, well, it's simple. Come and teach for me. Come and be my apprentice. And there's this woman I want you to go and work with. I don't want to work with her. She's just taken over the Conservative Party <laughs> and I'm a diehard socialist. So you go and two weeks later, there I was walking into Downing Street to meet Margaret Thatcher. So it really was um, baptism by fire, so to speak. And right. she was amazing, you know, absolutely made the, made the job so much easier. And we got on. This is the thing about the people that I work with. I'm supposed to be there. So there's a synergy between us. And I was able to help her in those very, very early days when she'd taken over premiership, you know, and had a voice that was sort of like that. And really what they wanted, what the party wanted and what the, the, the PR company, Saatchi and Saatchi, wanted was for Margaret to have gravitas, to have weight in her voice. So she was my first big client. But if you do, if you work with somebody like this, you have feathers in your hat, you know, yeah. so a number of other people came. And that's where it all began in 1980. Well, and you talked about that chemistry you had with Margaret Thatcher, but it really feels like your meeting with Princess Diana, there is instant kismet there. She yeah. immediately wanted to work with you. She loved what you had done for other people. And I think she was really attracted to you as a person. Would you say that too? Is there that, that just that energy? Yes. Our uh, uh, middle person, our go-between, was a remarkable woman by the name of Mara Burney, who, alas, is now passed. And Mara owned an extraordinary restaurant in Knightsbridge, which is the very salubrious area of this city of London. Uh, and... You know, the story about Mara was that the Stones, you know, the Rolling Stones, would call her at three o'clock in the morning after a concert and say, Mara, can you make a spaghetti? And she would get up and make the boys food. You know, that's the sort of woman that she was. Amazing human being. I think if we were Jewish, we would say she was a real mensch. You know, she was a real human being. Absolutely amazing. Love, 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 love. And so Mara said, there's somebody I want you to meet. And I said, oh, who is it? Because she'd introduced me to so many people prior. 
um, who, who had become clients of mine, and they were all movers and shakers around the world, you know, um, who dined with her in this extraordinary restaurant called San Lorenzo, which unfortunately now is closed as a result of COVID. Um, and uh, I said, well, who is it? She said, well, why didn't you just come and have lunch? And I said, no, tell me, who is it? And she said, do you trust me? <laughs> and I said, yes. So she said, well, just come and have lunch and you'll meet, you know, you'll meet us all. So I arrived feeling, wait a moment, intuitively, there's something going on here. I feel something brewing. And I remember entering into the restaurant and Pepe, the head waiter, was there. And I said, where is Madame? And he said, she's downstairs. And I said, who's she with? And he said, you'll see when you get there. So I walked down into the basement, into a private room, opened the door, knocked and opened the door. And there was Mara and there was Diana. And Di Diana just leapt up and grabbed my arm. So her face was sort of here saying, you will work with me, won't you? And I fell in love. I mean, she was just extraordinary. She was just beautiful and immediate and ordinary and extraordinary and fun. I love that you say fun because one of the questions I'd written down to ask you was why is it that Hollywood that you know I'm watching this new documentary that was recently produced about Diana why is it that the there is an obsession with remembering her as a victim when towards the end of her life she was thriving she would and, and everyone i talked to that knows her says she was so funny so what is the objective and why do you think that people whether it's you know entertainment documentaries biographers why do so many people dwell on this temporary part in her life and why do they try to remember her as a victim it's an interesting phenomenon it's really interesting and i i believe it says more to do with not to do with diana but to do with where we are as we review her life which is largely to do with the fact that we're still in trauma as a result of her dying we're still caught in that startled reflex you know that <gasps> Because, you know, darling, I'll put a, uh, I, obviously because of the book, that we, I have a very active social media department and I'll put a post up on Facebook and immediately there's 150,000 people clicking and leaving comments, but they're all ah, RIP, she was too good to die. May she rest in peace and going on and on and on. People are still in mourning. So I feel that that's an association with the whole substance of the fact that we related to her through our own victim complex. And we're not seeing that so many of us, particularly you want amazing women who, whether it be through the, the movement of hashtag me to et al, that we're moving on and we're empowering into victor status. And I believe that she she did absolutely, you know, otherwise we would have never have seen during those last two or three years, uh, the way that she's began to ignite her radiance, which was, you know, I'd like to think it's a lot to do with what we did together, because 
I was confident, I was confidentially in, engaged with her. That was the most extraordinary thing that she agreed to when, when I said, I will, I will. But look, I'm very aware of the fact that you've worked with a number of people like me before. And what they've done is take the story post working with you to the daily tabloids and that I feel you're scarred by betrayal. And I need you to understand that our relationship, I want it to be completely confidential. Is that okay? In other words, when you need me, call me on your cell. This was 95. So we were just beginning to use cell phones. Selfies hadn't come in yet, but we were using cell. They were very large. And, and, um, and come to me, I'll never come to KP, and just pay me in cash. So we deal with everything completely confidentially. I, I think Diana just said hi because my light just came back on. <laughs> the light just came back on. She's like, and this so, is true. I'm confirming it. Um, and so she became wrapped in this bond of confidentiality, which allowed her to be completely open with all of the challenges that she still was what was experiencing and how she could transcend. And so we worked on transcendent issues so that she could become gradually more relaxed, gradually more confident, gradually more in the adjustment of her own empowerment. And as a result of that, she started to dream really big about what she wanted to do with her charitable endeavors and defining her legacy, you know, defining actually what her USP was and what she wanted to do, particularly post-divorce. Uh, and was talking about, you know, buying a house in Malibu, talking about all the connections that she had in Hollywood, which wasn't just to do with Dodie as a producer, right. but other people that she met through David Putnam and, and so forth and so forth, where she wanted to make really wonderful documentaries about some of the charitable work that she was involved in as almost like sizzle reels to yeah. then get people to be really interested in the, in the narratives so that movies could be made. That was what she was talking about in uh, the summer of 97. So what surprised me about what you just said is that I, I had totally forgotten about that. That was initially what she told, I believe, Patrick Jepson in regards to meeting with the BBC was that she <laughs> intended to make documentaries. And how interesting that that is now what Prince Harry is doing with his relationships with Netflix. And um, I even think that they're going to try to do something similar through the, their Spotify content. So Harry had these ideas seeded all those years ago, albeit he was really, really young. They yeah. were seeded then. And I mean, you know, Malibu was a special deal because A, of the secrecy of those hills, B, because they're very sportive. So Diana swam once a day, went to the gym at least three or four times a week. Harry is similarly, you know, loves surfing, loves hang gliding, loves getting on his bike and being completely free. So yeah. one of the reasons why Diana said, you know, I think I'm going to buy that house in Malibu that somebody, and I can't remember who had mentioned it. I think it may have been Rosa, Rosa Moncton, her dear friend, had great friends who lived in the hills there, which of course is stunning as we know. Right, yeah. Uh, and we're talking about, you know, 25, 26, 27 years ago. And, um, and so she was, in fact, in September 97, she was actually booked to go to, you know, to come to your neighborhood, so to speak, and to check out several properties. And it was purely because, won't it be wonderful for the boys? Because we'll be completely private. 
and they'll be able to, you know, surf and go swimming and da 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 and get sun to their bodies. But she was a right. great sun worshiper. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, in regards to the the confidentiality between the two of you, um, it gave her that privacy. It gave her that sense that that she was safe. But it also, I think, opened up something for her spiritually that she felt like she had to inevitably share because one of the last times you saw her, you embraced and she said, you and I, we should tell people about this. I mean, something to that effect that we need to share this. Is that is that correct? Yeah, it was the last day that I saw her. And uh, as always, she was immensely tactile and wonderful and hugging, you know. Um, and she hugged me and she and she looked into my eyes. And to be honest, something happened in my body, which was a terrible thudding. And I didn't show her what was happening. And she said in her blithe way, mm -hmm. let's write a book, but we won't do it until the children are married. And then she kissed me and then that was it. And I didn't show her that I was disconcerted, but I realized as she was leaving that, that my intuition said, this is the last time that you will see her. And I dismissed it completely, and then eventually went uh, went on a went on a vacation myself to see friends in New Mexico. It, I was in New Mexico when I discovered, you know, that wow. I will never forget. My friends were taking me to brunch, and I just casually did something I never do. I looked over somebody's shoulder who was reading USA Today. You know, God bless USA Today because it brings a lot of news. But I don't normally read USA Today, and on the front page was Diana dead. And this sound came out of me. I've never heard before and never heard since. And just oh, a wail, you know. Right. It was such a shock. But yes, there we were thinking of writing this book. So I, I didn't do anything at all about it. I sat on it. And then when I became so involved with several of my actors, female act actresses, we call the generic actors today, don't we? who were involved in, should I step forward and talk about Harvey? Because he's, you know, he really, he, he's been brutal to me. Yeah. Um, and I said, you must, you must, you must. This is all about the emancipation of your voice. This is the voice of change. This is your bid for freedom. You know, there's a, there's a phrase that I often use, which is a Japanese proverb that says, when the women's voices are aroused, the mountains move. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm in service to the divine feminine, the arousal of the divine feminine, and to help you all with the emancipation of your own voices, so that if you need to step forward and say, I was brutally assaulted, or that was in unjust, where is the equity, where is the parity, I'm going to be there to assist. So, so many people, you know, not necessarily Ashley, but a number of other people like Ashley Jard, who was one of the first people who stepped forward. There were a number of other people. And again, I'm sworn to secrecy, but, you know, I did get involved in some New York, Time, New York Times articles that they were um, purporting to the molestation that they'd received from a number of men. That's, uh, that's incredible that it trickles down like that historically, yeah. you know, that, I mean, your, your story, it's, it's, it surprises me, but it also is so uplifting to me um, that you've chosen this path and you've chosen to elevate women. And this has really become what your, what your life is about. Uh, you know, you talk about the, the Diana Hart path in the book, 
but it, it goes beyond this book. You, it's almost as it's a lifestyle at this point. Can you explain to my audience what that is? And because when I bought the book, I thought it was going to be, here's what she said to me. And then I said this to her and then she, and what it truly is, is live this way. Like if what would Diana do is something that you ask yourself on a regular basis, you can read this book and it walks you through that process. You close your eyes, you see her, you feel, you know, you feel her hugs. It's, it's really a very spiritual and, it, you know, exciting process to read this book. And if you aspire to be like Princess Diana, you give people the guide. You, there is a physical guide now that exists that will help you choose the make the right decisions and be a better person um and can you talk to us a little bit about that yes um i mean i do believe that she was a very extraordinary icon and i mean in all archetypal purposes of that word that she was an anointed one who came to enlighten a path for the beginning of the emancipation of you extraordinary ladies and the re the arousal of the divine feminine which was really suppressed at the beginning of the age of enlightenment anyway there's a lot there's a there's a big thesis there historically yeah. which i've investigated and i'm very involved in yeah. however there was no so therefore it was not in my mind to write another a kiss and tell that's not my style i'm not a gossip monger and i saw no point in writing another chronicle you know, particularly because I feel that Andrew's book is stunning, um, albeit it's, you know, a time capsule in its own right. Yeah, yeah. I feel that Tina's book, Tina Brown's book, The Diana Chronicles, is absolutely stunning from a chronicalized point of view, a court diary. But what I wanted to do was to really allow everybody to feel the essence of Diana, not how she met this person and where she sold her gown or auctioned her gowns and how this happened and when she divorced, etc. I wanted us to all feel the essence of who she is so that, again, going back to the iconic template issue, that the women of the world could feel, well, if Diana could do that, why can't I? Yeah. And maybe if I could borrow some of the meditations, affirmations, exercises, or thought paradigms that she moved through to exorcise victim and to move into victor, then this would be a perfect vehicle for her. So yes, you're right. It's that this book is the beginning of a series of books that I'm going to write. I've already, as a result of this, this book being so successful, this book being so successful, I've already been commissioned by another major US publisher, would I write another book about her, her legacy? So I'm already researching that and putting that together. And then there'll be another book after that about the nature of the way that the Diana Heart Path is going to be a series of conferences or workshops for the women of the world to come together for co-creation, for communion, and for constru constructive creativity. So, you know, I, I, for example, the first conference, I'd love you to be there next year in New York. I want to get a major speaker like Marianne Williamson or Oprah to come along and to speak. And then there'll be a number of other wonderful women who are leaders in their field who can come and through the throbbing conviction, you know, the rhythmic conviction of Diana's heartbeat, we can actually feel how their appreciation of their own, their own destiny 
destiny, their own journey can influence the way that we all can become the magnificent beings that we know we could become, but are often very terrified of being. You are brilliant. Thank you so much for writing this book. I it I felt like a different person when I was done with it, and oh. I cannot wait to read the rest of them. I appreciate your time, and I hope I would love waking up every day being you, Stuart. I think you're a genius. <laughs> Bless you. You're such a darling. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful meeting you and sharing this time with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the To Die For Daily Podcast with Kinsey Schofield. A transcript of this chat is available at todiefordaily.com. Please subscribe to hear more from your favorite royal commentators. Cheers.